the book of Acts is a sequel. It's a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both accounts, and they're connected, actually, by overlapping stories. Both the ending of Luke and the beginning of Acts record the ascension of Jesus Christ when he gives his final statements to the disciples and then ascends into heaven. That's where Luke ends. It's also where Acts begins. Also, if you notice the introduction to the book of Acts, you can see this continuation uh, in the opening verse. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus is a man that, uh, that the books were written to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so here he picks up the story, but we need to recognize how significant the transition is between Luke and Acts. Luke is this testimony of all that Jesus did during his ministry, of amazing words of love and hope, of healing uh, and, and bringing people back from the dead, of having compassion on people, uh, of uh, being opposed by religious leaders, of going to the cross and dying in our place as an innocent man, uh, as God in the flesh, taking um, his, our sins upon his shoulders and then miraculously being raised back from the dead. We need to understand that the, the story, the, the happening, the reality that God is bringing to pass doesn't end there. That is the most significant moment in history, the cross and resurrection that weekend in the first century. Uh, but, but God's work isn't done there's still a plan. And so the first thing Jesus does when he talks to the disciples after he's raised is he gives them a commission. He gives them a work to do. And as Luke mentions here, it's a continuation of what Jesus was already doing. In the former account, O Theophilus, I told you about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. But in Acts, we find the continuation. But here's the linchpin of the difference. Jesus isn't here. Right? Jesus has ascended and he's left this ragtag group of disciples in charge of carrying the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, if you've read the gospels, uh, this is a questionable scenario. This is a bad news bears type of plot uh, because Peter and James and John, uh, they are at best knuckleheads. They have their own problems. The, the gospel hasn't really seemed to sink in the reality of who Jesus is. All of this stuff is in question. And so we open the pages of scripture with 120 disciples of Jesus gathered in a single room, uh, a large upper room in Jerusalem, praying. Okay. And this, what I want to show you is all of the amazing things that happen in the book of Acts where this message, message is carried and churches are planted all across the Roman Empire, where the greatest enemy of Christianity, Saul, becomes the Apostle Paul, its greatest advocate, uh, where we see the same miracles that played out in the Gospel of Luke play out in the hands of not Jesus, but Peter and uh, and Stephen, a deacon in the church, and Philip and his four daughters and all of these things, I want to show you this morning that woven through the reality of all of this is prayer. That what happens in the book of Acts is inexplicable, uh, impossible to disconnect from a regular and consistent lifestyle of praying together. Okay. And so as the book opens here, Jesus has left them with a commission and also a promise. 
He says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, but remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you'll be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so I want you to notice chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Who are those? Those are the disciples, minus Judas, who has taken his life after betraying Jesus. These are the 11 that Jesus has appointed. And then notice verse 14. All these, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In fact, notice verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Okay. And so where does the story of the book of Acts begin? It begins in a prayer meeting. Okay. And this prayer meeting goes on from the ascension all the way to the day of Pentecost. Daily, they are gathering in prayer. But I want you to notice the language, the language that's used here. I want to read verse 14 together, uh, together and then I want to pray. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together. Let's pray. Father, your disciples in the Gospel of Luke, I believe in chapter 9, come to you and say, Lord, teach us to pray. I thank you, Lord, that they learned the lessons that you taught them there, and so they know the place to begin in the book of Acts. They begin with prayer. And we begin with prayer this morning, God. We ask that you would come and you would instruct us by your word uh, in the necessity and the reality and the goodness of praying together. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, weave prayer into our church as you did the church in Acts and that we also would see the amazing yield of answered prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you hear how strong the language is here? All these with one accord. The, the word there with one accord means with one voice. It speaks of unity, of everyone in agreement, okay? Uh, this prayer meeting was not um, obligatory in the sense that everybody had to come. Everybody came. They wanted to be there. They were in agreement. They, the desire was there. And then it says that they were devoting themselves to prayer, now, we know that this continues. In fact, we know that this is an earmark of the, uh, of the church in the book of Acts because uh, Luke gives us regular statements, um, status updates, status reports about the church. And the very first one he gives tells us the shape of the church in the book of Acts. And it's in chapter 2 after Peter's sermon when, uh, when all of these people become Christians and the church goes from 120 people uh, uh, to 3,120 people. Um, and then it says in chapter uh, 242, they devoted themselves, there's that word again, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
Luke isn't just telling us about some of the things the early church did. He's telling us about the essential things that made up the makeup of the early church. And what is it? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, which involves not just eating together, but remembering Jesus' death and uh, burial in uh, communion, and then prayer. Okay. And so that original group was devoted to prayer, and the church in the book of Acts was devoted to prayer. And this word for devoted um, actually speaks not so much of a, uh, of a commitment as it does a rhythm. Okay? The way that this word is translated in other contexts than this is continuously. They were continuously about prayer. Okay? There's a portion in the book of Matthew uh, where it talks about a boat being available for Jesus. It's the same word. It's, it's, if we could use modern language, we'd say it's on retainer, right? This boat was on retainer, just reserved for Jesus. That's this word. They were reserved for prayer. It was such a normal part of their life. It was always available. In fact, Paul says later on in exhortation to the church, be praying continuously. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. This was... This was part of the rhythm of the early church. And then I want you to notice, not only did they devote themselves to prayer, but they did so together. Now, far be it from me this morning to discourage you from a private prayer life. Even when Jesus talks about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, he encourages us to find the closet, the hidden place, the place that's away from people, and to pray there. Prayer is an essential part of our own personal relationship with God. Just like we maintain other personal relationships through regular and consistent and intimate communication, so also our relationship with God. But what I want to focus on this morning is, is uh, not merely that, it's more than that, it's the importance of praying together. And this was something that Jesus himself emphasized. In fact, he said profoundly, if any two of you or three of you gather together in prayer and agree in my name, your prayers will be answered. He encouraged them to do so. And so the last thing that I want to, to point out to you is uh, that the idea here of this praying together uh, is, is multifaceted. So, for example, that verse we just read in Acts chapter 2, uh, in, in the Greek there, it doesn't refer to devoting themselves to prayers or a prayer, but the prayers, okay? Most likely in that context for the church in Jerusalem, it's talking about the daily hours of prayer that were observed by all of the Jews, usually at the temple. And so the early church continued that tradition, heading to the temple like the rest of Jerusalem and gathering together in one corner and praying at set times as a large group. But if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that this prayer happens uh, in smaller settings. This prayer happens sometimes, it's just two or three people. It happens uh, spontaneously as there's need. And so when, uh, when Paul is leaving Ephesus for the final time, they kneel down on the beach before he gets on his boat and they pray. But this thread that runs through all of the prayer life of the early church in the book of Acts uh, is praying together. It's multifaceted in big groups and in little, in official established times and spontaneously. When needs call for it, uh, and, uh, and in rhythms and regularity. Uh, when there is, uh, sometimes we see prayer meetings that go on for long durations of time. 
like this one here, uh, going from the ascension of Jesus all the way to the day of Pentecost, weeks and weeks of gathering for prayer, uh, or when, um, when Peter is imprisoned. And so the church gathers and they're praying for him all night long until he's delivered. Uh, it's, it's different, but they were devoted to prayer. They prayed with one accord, and they did so regularly, consistently, on retainer, continuously. It was part of their life. Now, why is it important that we get that this morning? Because if you were to delete that from the book of Acts, you would have to remove all the consequences of the prayer life of the early church. If we were to remove this reality from the early church, there would be no Acts of the apostles, acts of the Holy Spirit, acts of the early church to report. I want to focus this morning on just four different occasions in the book of Acts where we can see what happened because the church prayed together. Okay. The first one is actually right here in this context. Here they're gathering in this upper room and they're devoting themselves to prayer. Why? The reason is because Jesus has given them a promise. And so look at chapter 1, verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay. All of the times in all of the Gospels where Jesus commissions the church, he adds a caveat. He says, I'm sending you out, but first wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, you're going to be witnesses over the whole world, but don't leave until you have the promise of the Father. And so their prayer here is gathering in expectation and in requesting God to do what he said he would do. Now, that almost seems a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? Why pray if, if this is something God's already said he's going to do? But it is, a, it is a part of prayer in Scripture that we can see regularly. There's an occasion where uh, Elijah is bringing judgment upon the current king of Israel in the form of a drought. And then God makes clear to him that today the drought is going to break and it's going to rain. And the first thing Elijah does is he goes and tells the king that this is about to happen. The second thing he does is he gets away and he begins to pray. And as he's praying, he actually turns to his assistant and he says, do you see anything yet? And he looks out over the sky and he says, no, I don't see anything. And he gets back on his knees and he prays more. And he says, how about now? And he says, I see a cloud, but it's the size of a man's hand. And he says, we got to run. And they, this huge storm comes in and it begins to flood the mountain and, and Elijah and his assistant are running home. Now, Elijah has a very close relationship with God. He's seen a lot of God's power in his life. He hears the voice of God and yet he feels the need when God makes promises to bring those promises to pass through prayer. And the early church understood this as well. James says it very simply. We have not because we ask not. Oftentimes, the limitations we face as a church, the lack of what I would call uh, the reality of the early church, is non-existent in our lives as a church because we don't ask, because we don't seek, because we don't knock. Right? Jesus tells a parable. 
And the parable is about uh, a widow who is constantly coming to a judge, and the judge doesn't really care for justice. He's got the position because he likes the prestige and the money, and you don't get a lot of money or a lot of prestige from helping widows. But she goes to him day after day and says, give me justice from my adversaries over and over again. And Jesus says, eventually the judge gives in and gives her justice, not because he believes uh, that she deserves it, but because he's tired of seeing her every day. He says, how much more? How much more will our heavenly father give us the things that we ask for? You see, God's goodness, the fact that he knows our needs before we ask of them, the fact that he calls us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us, the fact that he's given us great and precious promises, Peter tells us, all available to us in Jesus Christ, where all of the promises of God are yes and amen, says Paul. That doesn't negate the need for prayer, it incentivizes us. It's like God has given us uh, what the Puritans called a panoply, okay? A panoply is a super old word for an armory, okay? God's given us this whole abundance of resources. But like the police station, we have to come, we have to request, we have to check out the good things God has for us. Why? Because God wants to cultivate his heart in our heart. He doesn't just want to give us He wants to make us. He wants to increase our desire to be used, to see God move, to do his works. We pray, God, your kingdom come, not because it won't come without it, but because God wants to make us those who are expectant for his kingdom. One of the most head-scratching and horrifying passages in all of Scripture is a passage in Ezekiel when God talks about judgment that is coming on the people. And God says, I looked to and fro for an interceder and found none. He was looking for anyone to stand in the gap and say, God, be merciful to your people. God, hold back your judgment. But it wasn't in the heart of the people. It wasn't expressed in prayer. Now, I know there's mystery there. This is no denial of God's sovereignty or his great will or his control. But what I would encourage you this morning is with the understanding of Martin Luther who said, leave the realities of the hidden God hidden. And you respond to the revealed God. And the revealed God calls us to pray. And so we see the early church praying in expectation that the Spirit would come. And notice it's in the context of that prayer meeting that their prayers are answered and the promise is fulfilled. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, still gathering together, still praying together. Verse 2, and suddenly they came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the beginning of the mission of the church. This is the place where we go from Peter, the denier of Christ. I tell you the truth, I do not know him. 
to Peter, the preacher to multitudes, who stands in front of the same people and now says with boldness, the one whom you have crucified, he is the Messiah. And anyone who responds today, he says, can experience the same promise available to Peter and all those who gathered in the room. For the promise of the Holy Spirit is not just for you, he says to his brethren, but for all your children and for any who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. That's us. That's us as a church. We pray continuously and regularly together, taking hold of the promises that God has made us in Scripture until we see them fulfilled. But that's not all. The other thing that we see in the early church as a product, uh, uh, if you will, a motivation for us to prayer, we see in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Now here's what's happening in chapter 4. Okay. Peter and John have just miraculously healed a man at the temple. It's drawn a crowd, and as they always do when there's a crowd, they begin to preach the gospel, explain what God has done in Jesus Christ. And as they're doing so, the religious leaders send out their posse and have them arrested and bring them before the Sanhedrin. And basically, they tell uh, Peter and John, look, you're not going to talk about Jesus anymore. And boldly, Peter and John say, whether it's better for us to obey God or obey men, you'll have to answer, but we can't help but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. And they don't really have, the religious leaders, they don't really have a strategy. They don't really have any teeth to their threats. They don't really have, uh, you know, a stick to, uh, to bring about any consequences. They were hoping that empty threats would work. And so they basically just say, well, just don't do it anymore, and they send them out. And what happens next is a prayer meeting. It's that that I want to read to you this morning. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now there's so many things we could learn from this prayer. You know, they, they draw here from Scripture. They see the significance of the opposition against Jesus as not just being significantly more than what they're facing now, but de- definitive for the big, broad realities. And they say, look, this is nothing new. The opposition we're facing is expected. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you also. They have all of this in tune. But I want you to listen to their request. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, that's a really striking prayer because what they don't pray is, now, God, keep us safe from those who would do us harm. Instead, they say, God, keep us bold so that we don't back up so we don't back off, 
so we don't pull back. And then they say, and continue to work your miracles and your wonders. Now, one of the things that we really need to take hold of is that when the church gathers together in prayer, we have an agenda. It's not just for the things we want or the things we need. Ultimately, all of our prayers are towards the single end, like Josh mentioned in the opening of our service today, towards the coming of the kingdom of God. The church's prayer agenda is set by the mission of the church. Their calling is to be witnesses of what Jesus has done, so their focus in prayer is how to continue to do that witness. And what do they need here? They need power. They need ability. And that power is not just self-confidence. Sometimes I think we can read boldness as if it's just self-confidence here. But that gets left behind when we see that they also ask for uh, healings and signs and wonders. They're not going to find that in their self-confidence, are they? They need God to work. To work in their hearts, to give them boldness. To work in their words so that their words move Cut to the heart so that their words impact, so that the good seed goes forth and finds good soil for the Spirit to work in that way. They need the Spirit to confirm their message with miracles. It's all entailed here. And look at what happens in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We need to pray together for the power we need to be the church. You see, the idea here, I remember this stupid story that I heard in some, I don't even think it was in a sermon, but it was in some Christian writing. And it was basically this idea was that Jesus gets up to heaven right after the ending of Acts chapter 1, right after he's ascended, and an angel goes, okay, Jesus, so what happens now? He's like, well, now, now the church takes, takes my message to the ends of the earth and, and everything happens. And the angel goes, them? Really? Do you have a plan B? And Jesus says, there is no plan B. And I hate that story because it makes it feel like, oh, all the weight's on us. We better get to work. That's not the story of the book of Acts. These are the works that Jesus continued to do and to teach. How? Through his church, by the power he supplies in the Holy Spirit. If you're intimidated in your workplace to share the gospel, you don't need to be berated by me on Sundays. You need to pray. We need to pray together. And I don't know what it means that the whole house was shaken. I don't know if this was a experiential, tangible reality, a micro-earthquake. I mean, I don't know what it means in chapter, one, or chapter 2 when it says that there was this sound like a rushing, mighty wind and, and things that showed up like cloven fire, but I don't see that fact as a good thing, that I don't know what it means. I want to know what it means. Throughout the history of the church, the times where God has moved most mightily through the church, where revival has broken out, it has always begun with prayer. Study it for yourself. Before every great revival in history on American soil, in Scotland, in England, 
trace it back far enough and you will find people who were overwhelmed with the need and the desire to pray. And they prayed until the power came. That's why we need to gather in prayer. Paul asks a question that I always resonate with in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about his own ministry. And he basically says, we've been called to this ministry of reconciliation between the God of the universe and all of mankind. And then he asks this question. He says, who is sufficient for these things? And every time I read that, I breathe a sigh of relief because Paul feels that insufficiency. Paul, who planted churches across the known world, Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament. But it's not just an expression of exasperation. He goes on later and he says, nevertheless, God has made us sufficient in Jesus Christ. The question there is not one of humility. It's one of knowing where the power is. Knowing where the sufficiency comes from. Paul is not saying we can't do it. He's saying we can't do it in the flesh. He's saying we can't do it on the own, on our own. And he's saying there is a resource. There is something available to the church. There is a direct correlation between the power of a church in ministry and the prayer life of the church. Let's look at two more. Look at Acts chapter 12. Some of the great opposers of Jesus and his disciples in the New Testament are the Herod family. If you were with us for Christmas, we just talked about the fact that there's Herod the Great and Herod Antipas. Uh, There's a a whole family of Herods, a whole lineage of Herods uh, in place. And in this place, the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who killed all the babies in Jerusalem, he uh, he throws James... Uh, and Peter in prison, and he he takes James's life. James, the apostle, dies at the hands of a Roman installed governor. Okay, and Peter is imprisoned, awaiting the same fate. And while he's there, the church begins to pray. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is. Um, verse 5 of chapter 12. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Do you see the foreshadowing in that little word, but? James is dead. Peter's imprisoned, but the church prayed. Now, what I love about this story is although they pray, And although this is 12 chapters in to the story of what God has been doing in this church, they have seen God show up so many times. They are shocked. All of them are shocked that God answers this prayer. And I almost get that, don't you? Because because James is dead. He's gone. It's too late for James. It's almost like it's now become tangible. The violence against the church But nonetheless, they begin to pray urgently. In fact, we find out that they they pray continuously throughout the night. Okay. But what I want to draw your attention to 
uh, is what happens next. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Why does Luke tell us those details? Because this is relatively secure, right? He's not just hanging out in a cell by himself. He's got four other people with him, and he's chained to two of them, okay? He continues here, verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. Okay, so to be fair here, there's one person in the church who wasn't praying. It's Peter. He's sleeping. Uh, If you know Peter, that makes sense. Uh, But it says here, the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Right? The fact that an angel just showed up and set him free from prison was too good to be true. He's like, I'm just having a vision. God wants to teach me something. This isn't real. He didn't believe. And it's not until he gets all the way out of the prison and feels the cold night air that he kind of wakes up and goes, I'm free. But he's not the only one. Notice this, uh, verse 12, uh, verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Who did she report to? The prayer meeting. What is the prayer meeting praying? That Peter would be released. And here comes Rhoda. Guys, Peter is outside. Listen to their response. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. Isn't that weird? See, here's the thing. There's no getting around the fact, as you read the book of Acts, that when we look at our own expectations, even when God has shown up in our life, God is still capable of surprising us, of doing the impossible. And we should recognize here that whatever faith is, which is essential in prayer, there's room for doubt. There's room for surprises. What makes their prayer powerful here is not some overwhelming confidence that God is going to do what they asked. They don't have that. But they pray, and they continue to pray. Not all of you know this, but These last few weeks, we got to know a woman uh, named Connie and her daughter, Jessica, who were in the hospital here. Uh, Connie's from Lake Tahoe, and she flew up because her daughter, um, basically her liver and her kidneys had failed, uh, and she was hospitalized, put in a medically induced coma. And so she came up here 15 minutes after she heard about it. Somebody bought her a flight, rushed her to the airport with a bag in one hand not knowing anyone in the city and just dropped in a hotel room. And so her church gave us a call to see if we would go visit her. And when we got there, circumstances were pretty dire. They were saying it was a 30% chance that Jessica was going to live at all. When they brought her out of the coma, she didn't wake up. 
I met a lot of their friends. I met a lot of the family. I met Connie, who was this amazing believer in Jesus who has her own amazing story. She drank herself to death. And when she finally woke up, they said she'll never speak again. She'll never walk again. Uh, and obviously, she does all those things now. But she was sitting there with her, with her daughter, and our church had the opportunity to be around for the next week. They released her from the hospital yesterday. It's insane. And I'll be the first to tell you, I prayed, but I wasn't hopeful. I didn't think that God would do what he did. Connie did. She held on to that hope. We continued to pray. And I sat down with Jessica yesterday and, and talked with her for about 30 minutes before she was released. All things are possible with God. How many times do we write off the realities in our life, particular relationships, particular circumstances or opportunities? How many times do we let a door close and we go, that door is closed for good? When we pray, Revelation tells us we pray to the one who opens doors that no man can shut and shuts doors that no man can open, the holder of the keys of King David, Jesus Christ himself. I want to look at one more in just the next chapter. Now here we're moving on from the church of Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch is an interesting and miraculous story. Um, it's also an incredibly ethnically and racially and even linguistically diverse church because that's the type of place Antioch was. And so what happens here is the leadership of the church is praying, and I want you to notice what happens in this prayer meeting. So chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so here, they're worshiping together, they're fasting together, they're praying together, and God speaks to them. Now, I think this is one of the lessons uh, that, uh, that is kind of secondary in the Christian life. When we start prayer, we learn how to talk to God. We learn how to ask of God. We learn how to knock and to seek but as we grow in prayer, we should also learn how to hear God. We should give room for him to speak to us. We should recognize, as we see in the church here, that God has things to say. Here's the thing. It's not really the mission of the church. The church is operating as functionary stand-ins for the mission of Jesus, and he has a plan. And we see that plan very specifically here. He says, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them, which I have prepared for them. And see, here's the other thing that happens when the church comes together and prays. God calls and commissions and sends. You see, one of the things that happens when a church doesn't pray is it becomes a dead end. It becomes a cul-de-sac. It becomes insulated and inward-focused. Thinks of its needs and its wants, and its comforts. But a church that's constantly praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, 
a church that's constantly praying, God, what would you have us do is drawn out of itself. It's moved beyond itself. And sometimes God lays a finger on individual people and says, you, I'm calling. You, I have a work for. You, I want to take you elsewhere. I want to move you into something new. And what springs out of this little church in Antioch, where Paul is just one of a team of teachers, him and Barnabas are set apart, and from this they plant churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Thessalonica. They move all over Asia Minor and the rest of the Roman Empire, and God shows up in their lives, and the kingdom of God spreads and begins to take over the Roman kingdom, but it began, as it always does, in a prayer meeting. As they were gathered together and seeking the Lord, seeking his will, listening to hear his voice. I think for some of us, well, all of us have a tendency to get stuck in the routine, where life becomes an end in and of itself. We're just going through the motions of working to eat and eating to work, And we've got integrated into that the reality that is our church, which I love. The relationships that are here, that are established, that we find joy from, uh, that we enter into. But Paul tells us in Ephesians that God has prepared good works that you should walk in them. And I think we have a tendency to stop looking. Nick always wisely says, when you pray for opportunities, you'll be amazed that God always answers that prayer. Why? Because he told us there's opportunities. He's laid them before us. I think some of us in this church lack purpose right now. We don't know what it is that we're supposed to be doing. We find the answers to those questions in prayer. Timothy is Paul's young disciple who travels on his missionary journeys and then later in his life is sent out to take care of particular missionary problems at the churches that they've planted. And Paul reminds Timothy in both of the letters that he writes him to stir up the gift that God has given in him during the laying on of hands. You know what that says? It means that Timothy discovered the gifts God had given him in a prayer meeting as he was being prayed for. So Let me summarize what we've seen this morning. We've seen not just that the early church had a constant rhythm of praying together, but in doing so, the promises that God had made the church were answered. That the power they needed for the mission God had given was freely bestowed. We've seen that the impossible that was beyond what they could even ask or think or imagine was accomplished. And that the mission of the church was spread beyond the building, beyond the neighborhood, beyond the city, beyond the country, as God God called and set apart. Ultimately, what we're talking about here is recognizing the fact that prayer is like communication in the military sense, with the back end, with the generals higher up, with the supply chain, with everything. There is no Acts in the book of Acts without the regular, continuous praying together with one accord of the early church. That's why we're taking this time and and jumping in. I'll, I'll be honest, with both feet, a daily commitment is a significant commitment. A 7.30 commitment is against the grain of my humanity as much as it might be yours. 
okay. But one of the things that's hard about praying together is finding a time that's not scheduled. So guess what? We've found a time that doesn't interfere with your plans. Okay. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. And things got so crazy and so busy because he was a frontier missionary. He was one of the first to start doing mission works in China. So as things got rolling, he was, he was the, the head of the shoulders of this whole operation. And so as soon, as soon as breakfast came, it was meetings all day. So he started getting up at 4 a.m. to pray because it was the only time he could find that was uninterrupted. And you will find that consistently as you study people's prayer life. Okay. Martin Luther said, the more work that I have to do, the more time I devote to prayer. So I'd really encourage you to find a way to come alongside us as we pray together. If you can be here in the mornings, every morning, that's great. Most mornings or some mornings, that's great too. If you want to establish a different place with a different group of people to pray, like I said, through the bulletin or our Facebook page, you can snag the resource and you can pray right along with us. But this is, this is the lifeblood of the church. Spurgeon called the prayer meeting that happened during his service every week, this preacher who had a church of 10,000 people at the turn of the 20th century, he called it his engine room. Let's see what God can do. Let's see what God wants to do. Let's see God keep his word fulfill his promises, empower his people, change the lives of those around us. Let's gather together in prayer. Let's pray now. God, I said it before the service, I say it again, Lord, teach us to pray. The reason why prayer is powerful, Lord, is because it connects us with the powerful God. We know that you desire to work in our hearts, that chains can be broken, that ways where there is no way can be made, that obstacles can be overcome, that mountains can be moved. We know that nothing is impossible for you. And so I pray that you would build into our habits as a church regular times and spontaneous times and an instinct to pray together. And I ask God for these next four weeks as we pray that not only would you teach us to pray with urgency and fervency but and consistency, Lord, but that you would give us eyes to see the answers to prayer. That we would be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness and your power. I pray, Lord, that we would become, because it is your will, a praying church. And we thank you, God, that you had sent your son while we were still sinners, while we were far from you, before we were even born, God, you started this plan. And so we're stepping into it, having all we need for life and godliness. 
everything at our disposable in the name disposal in the name of Jesus Christ. Teach us to pray. Amen. As we continue with our worship this morning, uh, let's do so. And if you're